You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Did you know that plants all have different effects on each other within your garden? It's true, and depending on the plant in question, the effects may be positive, like attracting predators, or negative, such as poisoning the soil. In this episode, Angelo Iliades takes us through some of the companion planting rules between plant families we use in our veggie patches. You might remember him from episode 70, titled Enhance Your Urban Yield. He's a permaculturist that runs the Deep Green Permaculture website, which is one of my favourite online gardening resources. G'day Angelo, welcome back to the show mate. It's a pleasure to be back Daniel, always happy to be here. Yeah, our last episode was a cracker, so if our listeners haven't heard that one, make sure you go and check that one out as soon as you finish this episode. But I'd like to start the episode by asking you, why should we even care about companion planting? Okay, the interesting thing about companion plants is people think it's just a simple formula to sort of grow plants better by, you know, growing tomatoes with basil for something to that extent, something so simple. It goes far beyond that. The principles that underpin companion planting are ecology. It's ultimately all about how all living things live in relation to each other and to their surroundings. And the relationships between living things can be either detrimental or they can be beneficial and in companion planning what we intend to do by through intentional design is by pairing up plants together or creating whole guilds whole families of plants around a central plant to create beneficial relationships where the plants planted together achieve some sort of synergy and they achieve more than the plants planted on their own we also aim to minimise the detrimental relationships in what we call bad companions, where we try to keep plants that are detrimental to each other's growth or health apart from each other. So ultimately, what we're really doing, when we go beyond following simple formula sheets for companion planting, is establishing beneficial ecological relationships that on a deeper level, and this is what happens when you step into permaculture design, you're really doing ecological design. And when you do ecological design, you have one major, major benefit. That is, you're getting nature to do the bulk of the work for you. Whenever you create beneficial relationships between living things, whether they're animals on your farm, you know, whether they're plants, whether they're trees or crops of any other kind, you gain something that you didn't have before and where you're gaining that from is from nature itself. So what you're actually doing is getting more in touch with what nature does, understanding how things interact with each other and with nature and maximising those conditions, situations or combinations um, to create beneficial ecological relationships because ecology is all about relationships, permaculture is all about relationships And what we're doing in companion planting, even at a very beginner level of planting a certain vegetable with another vegetable, is creating a beneficial relationship. So things are supporting each other and nature's supporting those things together. So that's quite a long explanation, but that's the ultimate gist of it, which most people just gloss over because they don't look any deeper than 
plant tomatoes with basil, but there's a lot more <laughs> to it than that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess let's kick our examples off with brassicas. Like, do you have any general advice for somebody wanting to plant something like a broccoli, rocket, bok choy, or anything else in that family? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a very good example, something that actually did some work and got noticed by the government in New South Wales, strangely enough. One of the best companion plants for for the whole brassica family, you know, the cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli family, is what we call landcress. The botanical name is Barbaria vulgaris. There's also one called upland cress or American cress, which is Barbaria vernia. Now, landcress is a salad cress, and traditionally people used to plant it amongst their cool season brassicas, and they did that for a particular reason. Other than having an extra plant in between your main brassica veggies, what it does is it's what we term a trap crop. It puts a chemical out from its leaves, which says which says to diamondback moths, certain other moths and butterflies, lay your eggs here. So what they do is they lay their eggs there and it gets eaten in preference to your crops. That's how trap crops work. They're a decoy. So the idea is they're more attractive to the pests than your main crop that you want to protect. So they're a sacrificial crop. The pests will eat those, and then the plant is tough enough to either go to seed and come up the next year or survive being eaten to the ground and bounce back. Now, the good thing about landcress is that it is a biennial, so it lives for two years. It grows the first year, second year, goes to flower, then produce, oops, sorry, and then produces seeds. And then you end up with lots of little plants everywhere. So it spreads relatively easy, but it's not weedy. And what you do is you dig them up and then you replant them. Now, that's only the first half of what landcress does. Now, the other part of landcress that is amazing is its other function because it's not only a trap crop, it's what we call a dead-end trap crop. What that means is once the butterflies are attracted and moths are attracted to lay their eggs on it, as soon as they start eating the leaves, there's a compound in the leaves called a saponin, which is like a natural soap. We can't actually taste it. It has no effect on us because we can't even detect it there. And... What happens is when the little baby caterpillars start eating the leaf, they die. So it's a dead end. So it it directs them to eat it and then they eat it and die. Now, I believe that it will attract nearly all butterflies and moths to let the eggs act like a trap crop. But but as a dead end trap crop, the saponins will only kill, I remember it was diamondback moths. There was one other kind of moth that was a definite and a few butterflies, I think. So it'll it'll generally control butterflies either as a trap crop or a dead end and moths as a as a trap crop or dead end trap crop, but it won't control all of them like the infamous cabbage whites. They'll probably be lured to lay their eggs there in preference to your brassicas, so they won't strip your kale to to shreds, but they'll probably strip that instead. But the other thing is when it goes to flower, it was it was shown to be not. A, actually less attractive to the butterflies and moths, but more attractive to beneficial wasps. Now, the beneficial wasps that are attracted to the flowers, they're nectar eaters, but what they do is they parasitize caterpillars. So they'll aggressively hunt around your 
plants looking for caterpillars and they lay their eggs in the caterpillars. So as the caterpillar grows, these the little wasp larvae grow inside and they burst out of the thing. It's a bit gruesome. And <laughs> they multiply. So, you know, one caterpillar can produce, you know, several or many little wasps, which will then parasitize other caterpillars. So what the trap crop also does, so it's a, it's a trap crop, sorry. So landcress is a trap crop, a dead-end trap crop, and a best beneficial. Sorry, let me try that again. A beneficial <laughs> insect attractant. That's a bit of a mouthful. So it serves three functions, plus it's totally edible. Now, there was a big fuss about whether landcress was, whether which landcress was the right one, whether you go for the Barbaria, Varnia, the, or Vernia, the American cress or upland cress, or you had to have the regular landcress of Barbaria vulgaris. I actually checked all the current research, this was about two years ago, and found that they all contain the same amount of the compounds that attract the butterflies and moths to lay their eggs there. The American upland cress, or upland cress, whatever you want to call it, the Barbaria vernia, has less of the saponins, but it's still in laboratory test conditions achieved 100% kill rates. So you can use either and they both work equally well. Now, I actually wrote an article for the nursery that I used to work for, including that research, and I got contacted out of the blue by Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales. They are doing some trials out in the field for brassica crops. They wanted to do some intercropping, which means you plant rows of landcress between your main rows of um, brassicas on a farm. And the whole idea is they wanted minimum amount of work or minimum inputs into the system. So the idea is if you plant your landcress there and it looks after itself. And I told them if you plant your landcress at different points of time, because it's a biennial, you'll have different ones going to flower. You'll have different ones in their first year of growth and second year of growth. So they'll all be performing all functions all together. And you will, and because they self-seed, they can self-sow themselves back in those rows. So if you put them in every second row, for example, or every third or fourth row, whichever it might be, you will achieve the natural pest control, plus you will also have a crop which is self-perpetuating and it's also a companion plant. So I know that's a very long-winded answer, but that's probably <laughs> one of the plants to use. It was traditionally used you know, by the people's grandmothers way back in the day um, with their brassicas, but they couldn't explain the science. Now, a lot of people go, oh, well, companion planting is anecdotal, blah, blah, blah. We can't explain the science. I do have a biomedical science background. There is a lot of things <laughs> in science we can't explain, We know, and also in botany as well, that we can't explain. We don't necessarily understand the mechanisms of how things work. Some things we can explain, and I'll try to explain as much in bringing the science in when we're having this talk today. But we're going to remember that, same way that we, you can hop into your car and drive without understanding the, in, the workings of an internal combustion engine and engine management electronics, you can also do the same with your plants. Technology is knowing how to do something and being able to repeat it. Science is being able to explain what you're doing. So with a lot of things, we have the technology but not the science. So I can explain some of the science, but I can't explain all of the science of companion planting. But the thing is, the simple proof of the pudding is try it and see for yourself. And everyone that I've, because I've got a system where I've got controls, I've got the same plants cloned 
you know, propagated from the parent plant, one in an organic garden, one in a hydroponic system. And because I don't have all the ecology around the hydroponic system, it takes, I get, I don't get any pests in the organic garden. I get them appearing in the hydroponic gardens and they clear up in about a week or two in the hydroponic gardens, which are a fair way away. Oh, well, there's a short distance one that's close. That gets cleaned up in about a week or two. And then there's a, a second one, which is much, much further away, where it's all just concrete to get there. And they take about three three weeks to usually get cleaned up by beneficial insects. So I'm, I'm finding that having a proper system with controls, I'm seeing the effective distance from the organic garden shows that the beneficial insect controls are delayed in their response in controlling the pest because of their distance away from where the beneficial insects would live. So you can actually, mm. for, for people who go, oh, show me the science, show me the science, I was like, show yourself the science. So <laughs> um, the fact is there's so much research out on the internet now. We have so much information at our fingertips and there's nothing stopping anyone from going and experimenting. And the best way to learn firsthand is by going out and experimenting. Try something, see if it works. If it works, tell other people that it works. If it doesn't work, tell other people that it doesn't work. And that way the knowledge gets passed around and we basically build our knowledge base in our communities, that is. That's exactly right, mate. Mm. But are, I wonder, are there any bad neighbours for brassicas or uh, you know, do they get along with everybody? or? Oh, it's so and so. If I look at one of those typical companion planting lists, which are just big, big lists of things, they seem to have rather strange things like roost strawberries, tomato, and garlic, say for cabbages, or just strawberries for Brussels sprouts. I don't understand the science behind that because I would think the strawberries would get overwhelmed. But the, if we flip it around, though, Brassicas are bad companions to a lot of plants under certain <laughs> circumstances. What happens with brassicas, I guess they will overwhelm things like strawberries. With rue, rue puts out a, um, a chemical from its roots which will poison sage plants and vice versa. So there's probably some root interaction going there because uh, the, the brassicas have a lot of sulfur compounds that they contain, which actually what's what makes them beneficial but they also have other ones that protect themselves from insects they can protect themselves from fungal diseases being winter crops hence the sulfur like the same way that you spray sulfur so they've got the ability to concentrate sulfur when there's a pest or disease attack i believe as well but the thing with all the brassicas is that if you if you chop them up and let them rot down what they will do is they will release compounds that suppress other plants the growth of other plants all seeds germinating. So I normally do a thing called chop and drop where if I've my plants have say my tomatoes are finished for the season, I would chop them at, at the um, soil level, lay down the plants and just mulch over them, or you can bury them or you can chop them up them through a mulcher and, and lay them down that way and let the roots rot down in situ. That way it's all breaking down. It's called sheet composting the system. Now with brassicas, if you do that, they the plant material that breaks down releases lots of compounds which will suppress a lot of plants around them. And turnips also have the capacity when they're going to seed to suppress other plants' growth or seeds germinating around them. So a lot of people say if you've got a wheat patch, just plant lots of turnips and let them go to seed and they'll clear up or slow down a lot of plants around them that you don't want growing. So 
there are lots of bad interactions. A classic case of um, bad companions, I did mention sage and rue. Most people don't have any idea what rue is, so it, it is a herb. Most Italians know it, but it's probably not well known. I think most people here just use it as, as a cat repellent. It's a small citrus. It's actually distantly related to citrus, but grows like a sage plant in hot, dry conditions. And if you just hang some, you know, wherever cats go or, or throw them on the ground, they absolutely hate this stuff. So you mentioned when you chop and drop brassicas, they're exuding some of these nasties that we don't necessarily want around our veggie roots. But what about the what about if we chop the brassica leaves and the flowers and we take them away, but we leave the roots in the soil? Is that still doing damage? Yes, the roots actually breaking down will do the very, very same thing. So what I do, I, I normally leave the roots of everything in the ground and also put things below my mulch, except for the brassicas. The brassicas I normally will take into my compost bin, compost them there, and then they come back that way. Okay. So that's a better way to do it, yeah. So, yeah, maybe, yeah. So can you just rotate within the brassica family? No. One of the things that you can't do is rotate within families because whenever you have any family of plants, they take up the same nutrients and deplete the same nutrients, and they also share diseases. That's why you've either got to change families or change or rotate crops according to nutrient demands, which I can go into a bit more detail. That's a great point. Yeah, would you mind going into the nutrient demands now before we keep moving on? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because with, with crop rotate, sorry, with companion planting, as we were talking about, what we're doing is we're maximizing the benefits between plants that build a synergy between themselves. So if you have a plant that, one plant that works better with another plant, then you plant them together to actually get more benefit than planting them on their own. The other thing that we also do in companion planting is don't plant plants that are bad for each other. Now, that can be other plants, but also if you plant the same plants in the same location over and over and over, what happens is that certain families of plants or certain types of plants will take up specific nutrients and deplete them quicker than others. So what you end up with is a very unbalanced soil. The other thing is if you have the same plants in the same spot year after year after year, all the pests that absolutely love those plants will migrate to that area and also embed themselves into the soil and the surroundings. So will all the diseases. And what happens then is that the plants get weaker and weaker. And if you get something like root knot nematode, which affects like tomatoes. You won't be able to grow tomatoes in that same spot for five years. So some of these diseases are quite serious. So what we do is we rotate plants to different beds. We grow them in one bed one year, then we move them to another bed, then we move them to another bed. Now, traditionally, we've known that if you plant the same plants from the same, so if you plant plants from the same family, say you're planting all brassicas in one bed and you're planting brassicas over and over, or tomatoes or it could be something like the tomato family, which you know, which would be chilies, eggplants, tomatoes, potatoes. They're all the same family. So if, if you plant the same plants from the same family, they will deplete all the nutrients that they need the most and which will weaken them, slow down the growth, so they become less productive, plus all the diseases will start gathering in the area, like I just said. So the logical thing to do is simply just rotate family. So if I grow brassica family in one season and I'll possibly put something 
like you know a pumpkin family the next season or a tomato family and just rotate them through or the carrot parsley dill family for example so you can do that but the catch is to sit there and work out what's in what family and rotate through about seven different families is an absolute pain so what most people do is ignore it and they don't bother and that is bad because it's only because of the inefficiency of the system that people don't use it and end up basically um, well the garden succumbs to diseases and pests and productivity goes down and if they're a new gardener they'll go oh well I started off it was great but then it got worse and worse and worse and I can't seem to grow anything it's probably just me and they just give up which is bad it's nothing to do with them it's their gardening prowess it's the fact that they're depleting nutrients and basically creating environments that maximize diseases and pests they're and since no one really liked that system of rotating by plant family, there was a, a gentleman by the surname of Jeevans who um, worked out a system which was far, far easier to remember. It was rotation by crop nutrient demand. He just came up with three categories, heavy feeders, light feeders, and light and heavy givers. So, got, so the heavy feeders are plants that take lots of nutrients and really deplete the soil. The heavy givers are the plants that you grow to restore the soil and the light feeders, which is self-explanatory, are plants that take very little nutrients. Now, it's much, much, rather than referring to lists of things to figure what goes in what category, it's really, really simple to work with this system because this is how it works. Essentially, all the, virtually every vegetable is a heavy feeder, except the heavy givers, which are all the legumes, the bean pea family. And then you have all the light feeders, which are the root crops, which makes okay. it really easy to do. So what you do is you can plant whatever veggies you want in a bed the first year. S second year, you move them to another bed, and then you plant the heavy givers, the legumes. So in the warm season, you can plant all your climbing beans your dwarf beans and things like that and in the cool season you can plant your peas snow peas and your broad beans so you've got two legumes to rotate through you could also plant green manures and things like that and which include legumes of sorts as well and you dig those in but that's a different matter so and then the third year you just plant your root crops in that same bed and they all move down a bed and just keep it rotating which is really really easy and that's the one that I recommend. So that way, the first year, the nutrients get depleted quite drastically. The second year, the legumes go in, which are the heavy givers, and they put a lot of the nutrients back. And then the third year, all the root crops go in, which give it a light feed. And then the fourth year, the heavy feeders come back in again. So you're only getting like the heavy feeders in the bed for year one, then year four, then you know, then you have a similar gap for the year after that that's fantastic great knowledge mate yeah no problem thank you yeah mate i wanted to move on to the next family which is the parsley family you've mentioned it yeah it includes dill coriander carrots and a bunch of other veggies that we all know and love what do you reckon about that family now they're pretty amazing because they're that whole family which is called the apaca family was formerly called the umbelliferae family because the little flowers are like little umbels, like little umbrellas of flowers. They, there's a lot of useful 
veggies and herbs in that family. But the thing is, when they go to seed, they become one of the premium insect, beneficial insect attracting companion plants. Because a lot of beneficial insects need shallow flowers, which we can go into detail a lot more. And these shallow flowers attract not only your bees, which you need for pollination for a lot of plants and trees, but they also attract lacewings, ladybirds, hoverflies, and they will control all of your pests. Now, a lot of the APACA family, the carrot parsley dill family, usually they can be annual like carrots or they can be biennial like parsley. Biennial means that they grow one year, then they second year they go to flower, then seed, and they die down. When they go to seed, they are extremely valuable. They grow a lot in size. So a little humble carrot is only like about 30 or 40 centimetres high. Once you let it go to seed, though, it's going to grow to about one and a half metres tall. So it grows into quite a size. So you only need to let one or two carrots or one or two parsley plants go to seed, and they'll produce so much flowers to attract all the beneficial insects, which will start actively controlling all your parasites, sorry, all your pests including. They'll also attract parasitic wasps, which will control all your pests too. Sorry, I was just jumping ahead there. <laughs> and then you will end up with a lot of seeds so you can actually replant them the next year, which is fantastic. Yeah, and I guess when parsley family members go to seed, it's called going to bolt, and they don't taste very nice, unlike when mint family herbs go to flower. Yeah, that's it. The, the term bolting is when things go to flower, then go to seed um, prematurely. Now, most herbs you pick when the buds are just about to open. The only exception is the mint family, they reach their maximum flavor. They've got the highest con- concentration of aromatic oils or essential oils, as they call them, when they're in flower. Now, with a lot of your veggies, like lettuce will go bitter when it starts going into flower. The, the plants actually change their chemistry. Maybe it's perhaps to stop things eating them at their most productive time when they're actually going to reproduce. But yeah, things if you let things go to flower, they usually taste absolutely horrible. If they bolt, yeah, then they're pretty well, it's game over. So one way of some things will like corianders is atrocious for bolting prematurely. What will happen is it will go to flower and then die off because it's an annual. And that usually happens if it gets too dry or too hot. So even though the labels say plant in full sun, it's better to plant them in a spot that gets morning and midday sun and then gets afternoon shade or dappled sun through. And if they do go to seed, it's better to let them and they could hopefully then establish a permanent little coriander patch just like parsley does. Parsley, I find, will grow in the most hostile, inhospitable parts of the garden and will grow in cracks in concrete even at the side of the house where you've got your um, ducted heating and gas hot water heater and everything else. Yep. I always say to people, <laughs> be aware of parsley because it starts off as a cute little manageable plant <laughs> and turns into a monster that's about over a meter high by over a meter wide will take up a whole garden bed so plant your parsley because it can tolerate shade in the worst possible part of your garden you can imagine you want the places that got the best sun and the most fertile soil for your fruiting crops things that produce a fruit like a tomato an eggplant Mm. a cucumber or something like that so parsley is 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 an incredible plant and it and you'd actually grow that indoors. I've actually had one growing indoors. It's nearly two years old now, so it's just about to finish up. 
but they grow on a window, so we just keep having to chop them and they can stay nice and cute and small. They won't flower, but hey, you don't, there's no beneficial insects inside anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so what about good and bad companions for parsley family members? Like anyone get along or not get along? Other than them overgrowing and pushing out all their little smaller um, neighbours, they usually are considered a beneficial plant to literally everything because they're also what we call an ins- a nectary plant. They, pr- they have the little shallow flowers which will attract a lot of beneficial insects and provide a nectar source. So when the, the good bugs come and eat the bad bugs, they've got no food left, they can go to the um, the shallow little flowers of the carrot parsley dill family plants and they can survive on nectar so they usually survive they're not listed anywhere that i've seen as bad companions the only one which is a rather interesting curious one which i had to do a little bit of research over was coriander now if i not sorry not coriander it's it's bigger relative dill dill is rather interesting it is a beneficial companion plant to tomatoes when it's young, but apparently when it's mature, it can actually suppress growth of tomatoes. Okay, specifically those two plants. Yeah, which is a rather unusual interaction. So it's just dill and just tomatoes, which is rather strange because I remember coming across companion planting tables that would say, Dill was good for tomatoes, and I see other ones listing as a bad companion. And like, I had did a bit more research, and I found out that the plant, obviously, like a lot of plants, that change their chemistry when they're maturing, going to see obviously some to make themselves less edible to predators, you know, to herbivores when they're um, about to do the most critical part, reproduce. They obviously make some change, a bit like turnips when they're going to seed. They put chemicals out to suppress a lot of plants, so they don't have to be buried in chopped up and put into the soil, they'll just do that on their own. So a lot of plants have an effect of what we call allelopathy, which means that they can put chemicals out of their you know, structure, whether it's roots or leaves, whichever it may be, to stop plants around them growing or to suppress the growth of seeds that fall around them. So they do that to ensure that the conditions optimum for them and less optimum for other plants. And that's how they essentially keep their space in um, the world where lots of plants are growing and there might not be space or, or there's more aggressive plants that might try to take them over. So it's because of allelopathy that a lot of plants will ex- exhibit what we call bad companion effects. But some of those are beneficial to the plant. But there's other plants which will literally stop it. Most things growing around, like the classic is a walnut tree or a eucalyptus tree. You see the big patch of just dead grass around them. Nothing grows underneath them or very little does. And plants like wormwood are supposed to stop other um, plants growing around. So a lot of plants will do that. But, you know, brassicas mainly when they rot. Other plants only in certain situations with certain plants. So there's a lot of subtlety to it. So that's why I always say it's a lot more complicated than plant basil with tomatoes when it comes to companion <laughs> planting there's there's a lot of nuance there and a lot of um, conditional situations so what about mint family herbs such as like oregano thyme and basil like who gets along with them and who don't get along with mint family herbs in general okay the mint is meant to be really beneficial for plants like cabbages and chamomiles so 
I guess the bigger brassicas and chamomile seems to be happy with it. Parsley doesn't seem to get along with mint for some reason. Okay. Is it because mint just takes over everything? or <laughs> I'm not sure what it puts out from its roots, but the because the thing is when you look at parsley, parsley will, will be an overstory and mint will be an understory typically. Mint, most mint plants, other than things like basil mint, which grows to about a metre, a metre and a half, the... Most plants, most of the basil family are uh, what we call prostrate plants. Their their ground covers, they lay fairly flat. So it's not them muscling anything out because I've seen parsley is a bad companion to lettuce, but that's because parsley will just overgrow lettuce and push it all out the way and shade it out. Sunflowers do similar things to plants, plus they also consume a lot of nutrients. But I believe that it would be something coming out of the roots would suppress the growth, I would suspect. But the thing is, like, it's interesting you said about mint because mint can misbehave in its own way and can take over. <laughs> so um, the other bad thing about mint is we already talked about how mint can is best harvested when it's flowering. It's when it's got the most flavour. That's also the best time to harvest it to stop going to producing seed because all mint hybridises. So if you've got your peppermint over here, You've got your apple mint over there and you've got your spearmint over there and they get pollinated. Most of the hybrids, most of the seeds that are produced are sterile because they produce sterile hybrids. But sometimes the, um, so they won't actually produce anything, but sometimes if the seeds are viable and they can produce viable seeds, sometimes what you'll have is F1 hybrids where if you, the first cross will actually be viable, but it'll produce a weird mix of flavors. So it's a useless plant. And if they grow together, some can't pick them apart. So it's always best to grow your different types of meat in separate beds, but also to contain them so they don't take over the whole bed. So you can say, cut, take a your 12-inch wide or 30-centimeter wide pot, depending on what country you're from, and cut the bottom out, sink it into the ground, and plant the mint in there because it's going to be almost as a little bit taller than it is wide, the pot. Plenty of volume in there, about 13 liters of saw holding capacity. That's lots of root space for the mint to grow in. The mint can will grow, and as soon as it starts hanging over the edge, you just constantly prune it and keep it as a nice big round ball that doesn't touch into the soil around it and reroot and run away. So mm-hmm. that way you can contain your mint. Mint is a threat to its a bigger threat to itself more than other plants, I would say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I notice when my mint gets too bushy, it starts to yeah, yeah, basically the lower levels are sort of dying and it doesn't look its best. Yeah, and by that pruning, as you say, if you prune down to a little node, each each of those nodes will produce two new stems. That's so it. you're going to get them to become bushier. If you want to get your mint family members to get, become bushier, prune them regularly. Yeah, exactly. Because the more you cut them, the bushier that they get. And what eventually happens is that one one branch turns into two, turns into four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two. So you end up with a lot of leaf material by the time it's ready to harvest when it's when you want to max harvest a lot of it and you can take up to you know 50% of the plant but no more at any one point, you can harvest a fair bit when you're constantly pruning it, which works really, really well. Now, you mentioned oregano. Oregano is meant to be good with cabbages, but it's not listed as a bad companion to anything, which is rather unusual. I've, never, I've grown it literally against anything and everything, and I've never had any real issues with it. The thing I'm always aware of is when you're planting perennials, we already talked about annuals, which live for a year, biennials, which live for two years, and then there's perennials, which live year after year after year, like oregano, thyme, sage, all of those plants, and rosemary, for example, 
they live constantly. So you don't want to be putting them where their roots are going to get dug up around. So oregano is got, it's fairly shallow rooted. So you don't want to dig that up too much. The other thing I found with mint, it's fairly shallow rooted, but it spreads. But if you disturb the roots too much, you can, you can upset it. The thing with, also, with mint also, which a lot of people have make a grave mistake, like they do with French tarragon, is those plants die down to the ground in winter, as do chives, and they pop back up in spring. So you don't go dig them up and plant other cool season veggies over them when they're dying down because they're dormant. Some's below the soil or just above the soil, and it's too easy to dig them up and destroy them. So that's another thing to be aware of. So even when you're companion planting, just remember where everything is or is supposed to be because some things die down to the ground, come back up if they live longer than a year. When they do that, you don't want to also plant something that's going to shade them over if it's going to be around in springtime because it slows down their growth or can actually rot them out and what's it called, shade them out and they'll just rot out and you'll lose the plants. That's a great point. I wanted to bring up another mistake I made this year as well with the thime was that I planted some, it was, I can't remember what it's called, but it's from Clive Larkman and the and his team from... Clive's um, nursery is Renaissance Herbs Renaissance. or Romantic. Yeah, yeah that's the yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> the business is, is named Romantic. That's what they trade as. And because I know, because I, mm. I used to actually order for, I used to be one of the buyers for the nursery where I worked. And yeah, Romantic and Renaissance Herbs is what they trade as on the um, internet and with public. That's it. That's yeah. the one. And yeah, well, one of these wonderful plants. It's a, it's a basically a small thyme. But my problem was I planted it with parsley, which wanted a lot more water than the thyme did. And so, you know, I'm going to have to dig it out and then put it somewhere else because. The poor, the poor time just isn't performing with too much water around its roots. Yeah, that's that's an important point, especially during winter. One of the I already mentioned gripping plants um, by nutrient demands for crop rotation for water efficiency. You could also grip plants by water use, which is not a crop rotation system. It's a water wise gardening system. You can rather than putting mixing all your herbs and veggies together and watering them all enough to satiate the veggies, which will overwater all the herbs. You can create separate herb beds, which can be watered a lot less. That way you can put all your water-hungry plants in the, in beds where they're going to need a lot more water, and they could be watered specifically more only in those beds. That way the veggies get all the water that they need. The herbs aren't going to rot out from overwatering. And over winter, when herbs need very, very little water, they can – because it would be almost watered not at all and just catching natural rainfall and that will be sufficient for them. So it's also good to create separate beds based on water requirements. And one simple um, grouping by water requirement is veggies, which are heavy feeders, are also heavy drinkers. Herbs, which are light feed, tend to be light feeders other than things like um, parsley, um, they are also light drinkers as well the other thing is like you mentioned parsley can really push everything out the way i find borage a lot of people grow borage as a companion plant as well has a little um, little bluey little blue flowers that are actually edible that tastes like cucumber and it attracts lots of bees it's a a handy little companion plant you can actually cut the leaves and use them like comfrey they add a lot of take a lot of nutrients from the soil and you can put them in as like a compost or a green manure rebury them just to make the soil fertile but it Starts off as a, as a dinky little plant and ends up as a, like a one meter by one meter or more monster, and will just push all the other plants out the way because it's very very vigorous. So just be very careful. Sunflowers tend to do that too. They can push a lot of plants out the way. So those plants 
I tend to grow them away from other things because that's why I said grow your parsley in the worst possible spot in your garden. Mm-hmm. It won't be impacted by sun or shade. I've seen people where they've just got broken concrete and graveled sides of the house where all the utilities are and stuff like that. And parsley just takes off and just grows on its own. And it just really just establishes a whole bed of parsley, all the different life stages. So you can just constantly harvest parsley all year round, which is really, really amazing. So that's the best way to handle parsley, I reckon. Hmm. So what about alliums like onion, garlic, leek, and plants like that? What do they get along with and what do they not get along with? Oh, okay. The whole allium family, they, onion, garlic, leek family, they exude chemicals from their roots which actually protect carrots from carrot root diseases. And strangely enough, carrots also exude chemicals from their roots, which protect all the alliums from onion root diseases. So those two are great companions. In the tables, you, you know, they're listed as um, onions, the whole onion garlic family are listed as being companions to plants like beetroot, silver beet lettuce, chamomile, kohlrabi. The good thing about alliums, because they're, they're, they're little monocots, basically they have a single leaf when when they emerge as a seedling, and they have those big, long, straight leaves when they're um, mature plants. They don't shade plants out. So they're really good to plant near other fairly small, non-aggressive plants like beetroot and lettuce. So what I tend to do when I'm planting my plants is I plant the shortest plants closest to the sun, which in the northern hemisphere is going to be in your south, and in the southern hemisphere like Australia, it's going to be to the north. Mm -hmm. So to the north of my garden beds in Australia, I would plant all the shortest plants. And then as I go further back away from the sun, the tallest plants grow. That way, all your plants are sloped towards the sun to maximize your sun, a bit like solar panels on a roof. You actually get about, you know, if you look at the Pythagoras 345 triangle, you actually get about 20% more photosynthetic growing space because you've angled it all up. Now, when you plant plants next to each other, we're just talking about plants shading others out. If you use this system, the little plants don't shade other littler plants. And when you have from the onion garlic family, they're not going to shade out beetroot and um, carrots or lettuce or anything like that. So they work pretty well. And chamomile is fairly low unless it's German chamomile, which is fairly tall, but they don't upset each other either. But the catch is because onions put an antibiotic out from their roots, basically antibiotics kill bacteria, they, they can't be planted next to beans and peas, which have a little rhizobium bacteria associated with their roots which generates nitrogen fertilizer for them. Of course, if you fertilize your beans and peas, they'll still grow, but they lose that benefit of having those beneficial bacteria. So if you're going to plant your peas and beans in a garden bed, keep the onions and garlic family away from them. When you consider the difference in size, though, unless you're planting between like, broad beans, you would typically be planting your onions and garlic way towards the front of a garden bed and climbing beans and climbing peas and broad beans towards the back. The only one place where that could actually sort of coincide is if they're, um, if you're planting bush beans or the little dwarf peas. And people go, how far away should you keep bad companions as far away as possible? But if you can keep them, you know, like half a meter away, that's, that would be, usually be sufficient because all that's happening is Chemicals are being um, carried through the soil, through the soil moisture. So the further away you can keep them, the better. Right, okay. And for me, I'm living in a courtyard, so I'm using containers. Do you have any special advice for someone who's container gardening like me? 
yeah, if you're using any of those large um, soft watering beds or tubs, what you do is you can just plant your um, one group to one side and the other group to another side and something else that's um, not a bad companion to either of them in between. Because some plants are neutral, they're neither good nor bad. So if you're going to plant something next to them, if you rather than, if you can't find a good companion, just find something that's not on any companion table or it's not a bad companion. So if you put something in between them, you like if you look at some of those self-watering tubs, they're probably what about sixty or seventy centimeters wide. Some of the larger ones are you know about a meter wide to a meter and a half wide. So you can separate them out. If you're wanting to mix herbs in a pot, then I would or or veggies, what I would do is just mix good companions together. And when you crop rotate, you crop rotate from pot to pot and put different nutrient demand or different family crops in. But if one follows the other, it's not an issue. It's if they're planted together side by side. Mm. So if you've got a pot of, say, onions and garlic, and then you've got another pot which has got, you know, say bush beans in it or something like that, you, you can move from one to the other because remember one's a heavy giver and the other one's a light feeder. Mm. So if they follow each other, it's okay. If they're planted side by side together, that's when they're that's when you get a problem. Gotcha. And we can keep those roots in the soil, just take off the stems and compost them, unless it's a brassica when we want to pull the roots out. Yeah, definitely with your with your legumes, your beans beans and peas, you ideally want to leave the roots in because when you cut the plant mm. top any residual nitrogen left in the roots will just get released to the soil that's the best way to do it with your onion garlic family typically you either pull the whole thing out or you pull the root out anyway because that's the bit that you use so like with onions and garlic you're actually pulling out the little bulb at the bottom so and with chives they're going to have their own permanent bed because they're actually perennial you can also get perennial leeks which live year after year after year so they'll have a permanent little pot or permanent spot in the garden bed and that they'll, they'll never move so let's move on now to legumes like peas, beans, and lentils. Are there any other special bits of advice you have for that family? Yeah, well, those plants essentially, they're what we call nitrogen fixes in companion planting because if you plant them next to other plants, what they do is they release nitrogen into the soil and help other plants grow. They're also used as our heavy givers phase of the crop rotation by nutrient demand when we have heavy givers, heavy feeders, light feeders. Okay, so with all the legume family, they're, they're associated with a, they have little nodules in their roots, little little balls that create, create a place where rhizobium bacteria, their nitrogen-fixing bacteria can live. Those bacteria take nitrogen out of the air and they make nitrogen fertilizer. That nitrogen fertilizer they give to the plant so the plant can use that for leafy green growth. Now, the bacteria needs sugars, so the plant photosynthesizes, produces sugars and gives them to the plant. So there's an exchange. We call that a symbiotic relationship. It's a I scratch your back, you scratch mine, or you, know, you look after me, I look after you relationship. So they're both better off being with each other. So with those legumes, they have those bacteria. So if you wait till a – when you see like when you plant, say, broad beans – you can grow broad beans as a crop. You could also grow them as a green manure. And when you're growing them as a green manure, you're basically maximizing that effect. So when you plant your broad bean, it grows into a plant. It has a little rhizobium bacteria associated with the roots. So it gets some of its own, produces some of its own fertilizer. It will also 
take nitrogen out of the soil also, it will grow nice and strong. All that nitrogen that is stored in the roots at flowering time is going to go up into the flowers and create those legumes. The reason why the legumes, the beans, are rich in protein is because of the nitrogen. Now, if you chop them, if you do a chop and drop, chop them at soil level and drop the whole green bit and just bury it or mulch it or chop it up and incorporate it in soil or chop it up and mulch it over, that releases all that nitrogen that was going to go into producing all the protein in the beans into the soil. That's how essentially green manures work. So you make your own fertilizers. If you want vegan fertilizer, that's how you do it. Now, they will also release some of the nitrogen when they're just growing naturally. And when you do, after they've finished for the season, you just chop them and it will release any residual nitrogen into the soil. Now, the reason why you don't grow onions and garlic around a lot of the legumes is because it kills those bacteria. So with all your legume family, they are they're typically in temperate climates, they're annuals, they only live for a year. You can get what we call seven-year beans or perennial beans. There's a, peren- there's a perennial lima bean or a scarlet runner bean. They die down to the ground in winter and pop back up in spring. They have a big sort of tube around the soil and they grow year after year. So you can actually get beans that are perennial. They turn into huge bushes and they're extremely, extremely productive. But typically, most of your legumes are annuals and that can be rotated from bed to bed. Also, clovers are used, in, some clovers are used as green manures also, and fenugreek's also a, a legume. It's associated with nitrogen-fixing bacteria also. So any of those plants can be used to enrich the soil. They can also be used as a crop themselves, and they can also be used in a crop rotation system to improve the soil after any heavy-feeding veggies. So they are one of your most useful veggies you can actually grow. Plus. What makes the legumes unique is you're growing your own protein. Lots of mm. fruit will give you sugars and fiber. Um, veggies will give you fiber and lots of minerals and lots of vitamins as well. But the thing about legumes is they give you protein. So you can grow your own protein. The great thing about it is also they can be dried and they can be stored. So whether you create, you know, whether it's chickpeas or lentils or beans or peas or even peanuts for that matter which are also legumes they all are rich in protein so they give you a storable protein source so they're a great crop to incorporate so i always recommend to and because you've got cold season legumes or cool season legumes like snow peas um, sugar snap peas garden peas and broad beans and you can get a lot of the peas in both the dwarf varieties and the climbing varieties you can grow them in pots. You can grow them virtually right through all the cool season. Then in the warm season, you've got all your climbing beans and your bush beans so that you've got, you've got a warm season legume crop. So you can grow legumes all year. Most people don't realize that when we're talking crop rotation systems, you're, you're really only growing any crop for six months because you've got your warm season veggies like all your tomatoes and cucumbers and eggplants and pumpkins and things like that. Then six months later, the cool season, things like the brassicas, cabbages, cauliflowers, broccoli all go in six months later, but the legumes can go in all year round. You're just using different legumes. So they're a very versatile crop and they're very easy to grow. If now, if you've never grown legumes, just get broad beans. All you do is just grab the broad bean, push it in with your thumb so it's just below the soil level, 
and water it in, walk away, you end up with a whole stack of broad beans. And what you do is you harvest them, you let some of them, the first ones dry on the plant, so you can re-harvest the next seed, so you can re-sow the next season and your seed saving. So if you want to get into growing legumes, growing your own protein, and also seed sowing, I recommend grow legumes. You can't go wrong. Great advice. How about the nightshade family with members like chilies, potatoes, and tomatoes? Are there any generalizations that we can make there? Yeah, and eggplants as well. Yeah, those, that whole family, they, they're very sensitive to root diseases. There's a disease that plagues them called root, not nematode. Nematodes, if people see pictures, they, they see little worm things. They go, oh, I haven't seen those or I've seen something like that in my compost. Nematodes are actually <laughs> microscopic. But if you, I talked about the little balls, the little nodules on legume roots. Legumes have those, but tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, do not have those. So if you start seeing all knotted, twisted roots and the plants are getting weaker and weaker each year, you've got root knot nematode. So they are very vulnerable to, to that. So what's recommended is that they're not, they're not grown in the same beds together year after year. So if you, you can grow them all together, but you have to rotate them to a new bed every year. Can I just uh, ask you a quick one? Yeah. What about container gardening? Are nematodes a problem for container gardeners like me? Only if you grow them in the same pot each year. So I used to do a lot of container gardening. I still do because even when you're a gardener with a garden and you've run out of space, you start growing in pots. So what I do with my – I've got self-watering tubs, like the Grow Smart tubs and the veggie pods as well. So what I do is I move them from one to the other each year. So my my potatoes and chilies – so I've got a pot full of potatoes, and what I will do is usually with potatoes, I, th- I believe you can't grow them for more than three years in a row using the same one. So sometimes I'll grow them for two years, then plant something else in the pot, and I just use a large pot or a grow bag because you need a lot of volume for those. For for all my other pl- my tomatoes, I move them from pot to pot to pot each year. I've actually tried to cheat the system and grow tomatoes in the same pot for three years running. And they absolutely look miserable by the food. Yeah, they just wouldn't grow. Mm. And I thought, because mm, what I was lucky enough, because most people don't realize that tomatoes and chilies and eggplants are actually perennials. They're subtropical plants. Mm. And in their subtropical South American climates, they live year after year after year and grow really big. They don't die back. So if you keep tomatoes in a greenhouse or create a structure where they stay warm, you can get them to live more than one year. And I've got tomatoes and chilies and eggplants that are over one year old. The catch is the diseases start catching up with them sometimes. So you, it's better to take a cutting of it, even if they survive more than one year. You can just put the end of a tomato, you know, take a cutting of a tomato about 30 centimetres long into a bucket of water, leave it there for two or three weeks. It grows strong roots. You've got another plant. It's nice and healthy. But I would normally just move them from pot to pot to pot. So even when you're container gardening, just like if you're gardening in the soil, Every six months, so start of spring and start of autumn, which is September and March, you add new fertilizer to replace the nutrients that have been taken. You add new, you add compost to restore the soil structure or the potting mix structure because it get it all either packs down or you lose all the air spaces and it becomes very dense and stays too wet. So you just rejuvenate it by adding. I normally just add manure and then twice as much compost as I add manure, fluff it all up and replant and then. Just move from pot year to year, and that's a better way to do it. Hmm. And bad companions. Apparently, think plants like potatoes don't like 
don't like pumpkins or sunflowers and you're not meant to plant tomatoes with potatoes. Also, some plants are hosts to certain diseases. So you never put raspberries around potatoes. They don't really get on well at all. And it's also a good idea to keep potatoes away from rosemary. Now, with tomatoes, they have a few plants that they don't like to get on with as well. I've already mentioned that tomatoes don't get on with mature dill plants. They can, they actually, young dill plants are beneficial companions to them, but uh, mature ones are really bad for them. And we'll mention you can't plant potatoes next to tomatoes. They don't get on well at all, even though they're from the same family. Kohlrabi and fennel don't get on with tomatoes, but fennel tends to suppress most plants around it. It has a very strong allelopathic effect. So you normally plant fennel on its own anyway. Tomatoes and strawberries don't get on very well at all. So keep your tomato, keep your strawberries in their own in the strawberry tub. Don't plant, don't underplant your tomatoes with <laughs> strawberries. Plants that are good with tomatoes are asparagus, celery, parsley. Celery is another member of the APACA family, the parsley carrot dill family that we talked about earlier. Basil is meant to be good with tomatoes, but to get a beneficial effect, you need very dense plantings of basil under your tomatoes. One or two plants here and there doesn't really add much. It's more a convenience if you're actually picking ingredients for um, Italian cooking. Carrots are good for tomatoes, so with chives, marigolds. And plants like foxgloves, which are ornamental flowers, believe it or not. Garlic and also sweet corn. Sweet corn's quite a hungry plant. But if you've got the tomato plants in front of them, because they tend to be usually quite tall and have the sweet corn in the background, that's actually the sweet corn can serve as a beneficial companion. So you can gain those benefits. There's just certain combinations that don't work well. The other thing to be aware of is... It's not just plant combinations that we use in companion planting. Like I mentioned before, sometimes we use companion plants to bring beneficial insects to include, increase the vigor of plants, increase, increase the disease resistance of plants. But sometimes it's actually create a little bit of a, sh- a bit of shade. So if you've got plants that are quite sensitive to harsh, extreme sun and wind, you can use other plants to, to buffer the um, elements and to protect them. So sometimes when you have taller plants in the background like corn which has to be planted in blocks because you can't plant a single row of corn because it's wind pollinated and you end up with all empty kernels um, in the cobs what you do if you plant a block of corn it's a great windbreak as well so if you planted that say to the west of a garden it'll it'll take the brunt of a lot of the afternoon sun and it'll probably stop a lot of the the crosswinds coming through if you get a wind in that direction as well so it takes a bit of the, the heat stress off the tomatoes as well to keep them actually producing so you can use plants as like nursery plants or cup or protective crops as well. So they can be used in different ways. There's a lot of creativity with companion plants rather than just mixing things. The other thing is a lot of companion plants that, like I mentioned, foxgloves with tomatoes. Foxgloves are typical cottage plants. They are toxic. So if you've got kids or dogs, you probably don't want to grow those. But there is so many other plants that they get along with. Now, I'm trying to remember if there was anything with chilies. Chilies don't seem to have any bad companions, and they apparently get on well with parsley as well, as long as they don't let the parsley um, go to seed and push them over. But basil and oregano and rosemary also meant to be very good for chilies as well. I'm not sure whether that's because of their increasing pollination because the oregano and rosemary and basil and some are going to bring in so many loads of bees or whether there's some other root interaction, root chemistry interaction. But I've 
never had any trouble with chilies growing amongst other plants either. Mm. So what about gourds like watermelon, pumpkin and cucumber? Yeah, all the cucurbit family, yeah. Most people don't realise that watermelons, rock melons, cucumbers, all the same family. So tip, if you really think about it, a rock melon and a watermelon is a cucumber family thing. They get on with a lot of plants. They're good with legumes, like bean pea family, with celery, and they're also good with small plants like lettuce, happy with sweet corn. They also get on with sunflowers, which are quite um, competitive with other plants. And and rather strangely, they also get along with nasturtiums, which can also carpet and smother a lot of other plants below them. And nasturtiums actually are edible flowers. You can actually eat the flowers. Some people say you can actually eat the leaves. They've got a peppery sort of um, taste. Yeah, we eat them. They're, they're yeah, intense, yeah. but we like them. I wouldn't have a whole salad of them, though. They're an addition. Yeah, you add, <laughs> um, a, a little goes a long way sort of thing, but they are actually a beneficial addition. And nasturtiums also another trap crop as well. So they attract aphids. And aphids will attack your nasturtiums in preference to any other plants that they normally attack. So they'll probably won't be attacking your cucumbers, for example, or your watermelon or whatever other cucurbit you're growing or your pumpkins, and they will go for the nasturtiums. Now, the other things, the, the cucumber family can be grown upwards. The nasturtiums can actually be grown as a grow. A lot of them can be grown as a ground cover, like a living green mulch. So they'll act as a trap crop for aphids. They'll act as a green mulch to actually keep the roots of your cucumbers cool. So you'll have your cool cucumbers, so to speak, pardon the pun. <laughs> and they also have edible flowers. So it's interesting that even with fairly aggressive plants like nasturtiums, cucumbers, which they will take the sort of upper level, which if you think about the ecology, one is when you have stacked layers in like a forest system or any natural ecosystem, one is covering the vertical and the other one's covering the horizontal. So one's a ground cover and one's a climber. So they're, they're basically filling different ecological niches, if you want, and they can benefit each other as well in the process. So it's by using, that's where I was talking about using plants physically as well as companions. So they can work as living mulches. And when you're using things like vertical gardening or stacking, you can combine, you know, a lower level of say it could be just all lettuce below for example which is only going to be about 30 centimeters high then you could have like a a lattice or a mesh at the back and i've done it with my um container garden what i do is i just get bricks with holes in them and just jam wooden stakes in those because you can't stake into pots or tubs because they, they just get blown over and i just stack a few bricks put the stakes in up and put a sheet of mesh wire mesh the, the really rigid stuff and um, I've got vertical gardening so I can grow things like my cucumbers, pumpkins, and watermelon, rock melon vertically upwards. And when you think about the space that all the cucurbits take, they take a lot of space. But if you let them grow in the ground or halfway up stakes, they, they will chop a lot of space. But if you have like a one meter tall by two meter wide support, you know, little trellis at the back, You've got two square metres of extra growing space. They don't need much space in your pot or your raised garden bed or your self-watering container tub. They only need probably about, say, 15 by 30 centimetres. That's essentially all they really need for their root space. The rest of it is all vertical space. So you can actually combine with other plants and they can keep each other sort of – you can get a benefit Mm. by either getting a physical benefit, like I said, with plants that that give each other cover or protection – 
you know, or they can give you additional cropping from the same volume of space as long as their roots mm. aren't competing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing plants vertically, especially creepers, is a game changer in terms of yield. Oh, yeah, completely. I've found with what I did is actually got some recycled mesh panel that was, what is it? It was probably about one and a half metres tall by two metres wide. And I just propped that up behind my pots and I grow um, all my tomatoes vertically up. I grow all my, in, in the warm season, I also grow cucumbers and things upwards and what do they call zucchinis. And in the cool season, I grow all my beans, sorry, my peas. And the warm season, I also grow beans. So by incorporating climbing plants in your, you're maximizing the space, which is really good. And if the plants are actually, if you can combine two plants in the same container or pot or bed, where you're using the vertical space, using the, the lower horizontal space and their beneficial plants to each other, then you've, you're getting amazing synergy and increasing production. So if you can get pro, very creative that way, have a look at a companion table, you know, figure out what you want to grow vertically, then look at the best thing you can grow below that. And if you can find two companion plants that can be grown horizontally and vertically together, that's a better, far, far better combination than just throwing anything below the vertical plant. So because the worst thing you want to do is get something that's a bad companion. You know, if you've got a, a neutral companion which has doesn't actually benefit it or doesn't is not detrimental, that's no big deal. But if you can get something that's beneficial, well, all, all the better for it. Absolutely. So there's no sort of bad neighbours for gourds then, particularly? Not that I can think of or find. They seem to, because they're fairly aggressive plants. The only thing I can, that only comes to mind is that potatoes are bad companions for pumpkins. But then you wouldn't really be planting potatoes under your pumpkins. That would be a rather weird combination. (laughs) So beyond that, yeah, they're very versatile. And one of the classic, what we call planting guilds is when you combine more than one plant together to get multiple beneficial effects was the old Native American Indian Three Sisters Guild where they would grow, they would create a one and a half meter wide mound that was probably maybe, you know, about 40, 45 centimeters high, for example. Like imagine a big dome on the ground of soil. They would plant a big block of corn in the middle of it because, as I mentioned, because corn's wind-pollinated, it has to be planted in blocks. But remember, you're out in the American plains, wide open, deer can eat it, wind blows, sweeps across. So how do you hold it all together? Well, you plant climbing beans, and the climbing beans grow all the way through it and use the corn as a structure to climb through, and they wrap around it like baling wire to hold it all together. Now, you're out in the hot open plains and you don't want deer eating it. So what they would do is they would plant a real a specific squash which, had, which was quite spiky around the base. So the squash would provide a green living mulch which would keep all the roots cool and minimise moisture loss. They would also create a barrier for the deer to get into another, another sort of, I guess you'd call them, I was going to call them pests, but they're just herbivores just eating their um, food that they find because they've no fences around uh, time either, so they would just grow them out in the wide open. And each of these things, the sweet... So you, you've got something, a veggie, the, the squash, you've got the sweet corn, which is providing a grain, and then you've got the 
which gives you the carbohydrates, and then you've got the legumes which provide the protein. And what happens after they finish cropping, they would they would cut them down, they would bury all the leaf matter into that mound and replant again. So th- so with that combination, you've got sweet corn, squash, and legumes all growing together. So it shows that the cucurbit family, things like squash, will grow perfectly fine amongst mm. sweet corn and beans together. And they, when you plant all three of them together, they grow really, really well. A few people I know that I've mentioned, when I've mentioned this in companion planting courses that I've run, people have go, oh, I tried that, but um, what happened is that I planted the beans too early and they overgrew, they, they outgrew the, the sweet corn, which is slower growing. And they had nowhere to grow. And I said, yeah, you've got to time it. So mm. when the sweet corn is hitting its growth burst, that's when you plant the beans. So they'll have plenty of sweet corn to grow up and something to latch onto. Otherwise, if you've got very short, you know, like stump your knee high sweet corn and you plant the beans, the beans will, will race ahead of them because they've obviously they're nitrogen fixers. And they will race up ahead and they'll have nothing to hold on to and the whole thing will just be a big mess on the ground. So that one, you need timing to do that. Mm. But as I said, so that so the you can use any of the cucumber family with tall plants like sweet corn and also tall hungry plants like sunflowers. I just wanted to have one more plant, and it's in the aster family, but it's probably the one I've grown the most of, lettuce. Ah, yes. What, what, do you, what do you reckon about lettuce? What gets along with it and what doesn't? Well, lettuce is a fairly easy to get along with plant. Virtually, lettuce is, can be grown with anything, and it behaves quite fine. If you let it go to seed, it only gets a little bit taller, then produces seeds and i normally let it go to seed because then it just spreads and just get lettuce growing up as a weed all around your garden and it's not a weed because it's just basically they're just volunteer seedlings and you just dig it up and plant where you want the only things that don't really get on with lettuce are parsley and celery strangely enough and they're both from the acacia family but carrots which are from the same family get on fine with them they're actually a beneficial plant they're a good companion as are onions and strawberries and beetroot and cabbages and radishes and also, strange enough, marigolds. Now, a lot of people plant marigolds, the French marigolds, to stop root knot nematodes, but you need to plant very densely. So if you actually find that your pots or your garden bed where you've planted your tomatoes or potatoes or chilies year after year have got root knot nematode, you would just do a dense planting of the French marigolds. You could also put lettuce in next to them as well because lettuce is a good companion. And having lettuces interspersed amongst your marigolds will be fine because they'll be going through a therapeutic phase where the soil's been sort of biofumigated by the marigolds themselves and the lettuce will grow fine and the lettuce isn't a host to the root nematode. So you can get creative with these things. And I find that with lettuce, the great thing is if you use some of the variety. A lot of people love iceberg lettuce, which you basically have to let grow a whole head and then you harvest the whole thing all at once. But some of the other lettuce, like the cos lettuce, you could just cut leaves from the outer from the outer surround of it and you just work your way through so you can constantly mm. pick. And I find those lettuces are great as well. Great thing about lettuce is being small, it can be grown in pots. If you look at, a say, a lettuce label, say it says plant 15 centimetres apart and you've got a 30 centimetre pot. Well, you can actually grow four of them in a square because each one is going to be 15 centimetres from the other if you plant them in a corner, each corner of a pot, even though a pot doesn't have corners because it's round. But you imagine like a square drawn in it and plant one. 
you can get four into a pot. So mm-hmm. you, they're quite efficient space-wise. They, they're shallow-rooted, so they can grow in fairly shallow pots. Like I've grown them in self-watering little um, planters, you know, the long rectangular-type pots. They grow well in those as well. And they're a great plant to put along the front edge of a bigger garden as well because when you stack things with the shorter things towards the north, like I mentioned, lettuce usually doesn't get much taller than 30 centimetres. They usually go up the front along with things like beetroot as well. And lettuce and beetroot and radishes, they're usually my frontline plants closest to the sun. Mm. And they're also they're all good companions to each other. So I always love to put lettuce, radish, and beetroot as a row. So I normally put usually a row of um, radish because they're the shortest, then a row of beetroot, and then a row of lettuce. And if you look at the labels, like I said, they tell you the distance apart. What I tend to do is I also like to stagger my plants. This is getting to a little bit more into ecological design because we're looking to nature for inspiration. If you look at, a, at an egg carton, for example, they're all parallel. You know, the, the eggs are edge to edge. And so what happens is you get that sort of big bumpy bit in the middle where it's just empty space. So when you flip an egg carton over, it almost looks the same underneath as it does because the bits that are the spaces between the eggs, you can literally put whole eggs in between on the Mm. other side. That's not very efficient in terms of use of space. But if you look at something like a bee's honeycomb, they're staggered. So one row is growing there's one row of that are edge to edge, then the, the rest of the row sits between the big gap between them. They're sort of sunk in a bit between them, so they all sit closer together. So what you can do with your radishes, your beetroot, and your lettuce, because they have they they've got very small distance apart distances. The radishes obviously much smaller, the beetroot a lot, a lot larger. I think it's like five, ten, and fifteen centimeters. You can nest them together rather than going on the edge to edge, rather than going three straight rows you can grow like a nestled row the same way that you'd try to stack more jars in a box where two circles sort of touch edges there's the big gap in between shove the plant in between there sort of thing and you can actually get three rows of plants in very little width so if you've got a tub or a, a garden bed you can you can literally use not much more than 20 centimeters and squeeze three rows of these plants in so get your Radishes as the front row, beetroot as the second row, lettuce as the third row. They're all good companions for each other. And stagger them rather than put them edge to edge and you can get squeezed so much more in. So you get a real dense planting of three companion planted plants and those three pretty well grow. Well, the radishes grow nearly all year round and so the lettuce, which is great. Beetroot, I think, you can grow those twice a year, but I can't remember if it's exact. depends on where you live, what your climate is, whether you can get two crops a year or not. But you can get at least two of those going every time round. And radishes, also being root crops, and beetroot are very light feeders as well. So they don't detract from the lettuce also. So the importance is getting creative. If you look at the amount of space that you've got, you look at what plants you want to grow, and then you work out the best combinations so you try to get all the plants that benefit each other next to the ones that they want to be with and as far away from the ones that they don't want to be with. Then you also can incorporate other beneficial herbs that are companion plants and even flowers that will bring all the beneficial insects in to control the pests and also to give you edible flowers in your garden. So when you create all those combinations, you can get very creative and also 
leverage all these ecological principles so you get synergy, so things are working together in beneficial relationships without actually using any more space, any more time or labor, but you're getting much more out of it. And that's the whole point of synergy. The whole is more than the sum of the parts, and that's what we aim for. So it just takes a little bit more creativity and makes gardening less boring and routine because it's a little bit of a mental challenge. Some people like word puzzles. I like plant puzzles. And, <laughs> um, and this is and companion planning works great. This is the way I teach crop rotation and crop planning systems. If you look at a, if you look at a gardening calendar, because there's one for every month, so you can plant something new every month. You don't have to plant twice a year or all, all at once in one year. You can do it every month, every four weeks. You can even do it every two weeks if you're really keen. You can then you look at what's in season. So you have your gardening calendar in one hand, you have a companion planting table in the other hand, and you go, okay, now I know what I want to plant. How do I marry them up to get the beneficial mm. combinations? And then you also stack out long some plants. So then you also get a combat try to get a combination of plants that are early to harvest medium-term harvest and long-term harvest. Like sweet corn takes literally months before you can get anything. Some of the little lettuces, you can be picking literally day by day. Radishes, I think they usually have about a about a three-week um, harvest time from the time you plant from seed or seedling. So mix plants to, to better harvest things constantly. Mix things that, that, quick, that come to harvest, that are ready to harvest in the short, medium, and long term, try to get a combination of plants that are in season as beneficial companions. So if you can get all those three together, there's so many, there's an infinite number of permutations and combinations. So if you want to keep your garden interesting, experiment, see what works. If, you've, if you think that you might want to try a certain plant with another plant and it's not in any companion plant, give it a go and see what happens. Exactly. What have you got to lose other than time? But include controls. So if you're mm-hmm. going to, say, plant a lettuce next to, say, something weird like a dahlia, for example, because dahlias have edible flowers, of course, and they attract beneficial insects, you can plant one next to a dahlia and one away from a dahlia, next to, either next to something that you know is a good companion or a neutral companion, and just see which one grows better. And you can put a few of them in different places if you want to really be so thorough about it if you've got space to waste an experiment so if, if you're one of those people who say show me the science well that's how you do the science and you work it out for yourself and then you share it with other hmm. people because it's not about having everything spoon-fed to you even though half of it is already on the internet so the, the amazing thing with companion planning is there is so much to try and if you have your gardening calendar where you can look at what's in season your companion planting table that tells you what you can combine of the plants that are in season you can create all these amazing combinations of things to get much more productivity. Now, if something's not in a gardening calendar, like, for example, say if you wanted to plant lettuce next to dahlias because dahlias have edible flowers and some of them have edible tubers on top of that, what you can do is plant some next to each other and see what happens. But you also need to have controls, have ones next to something else that's a good companion or next to nothing else and just see what the difference is. And so for the people who want, you know, who complain that there's not enough science behind companion planting, well, there's so much that information that you can actually look at 
of systems that they're using in mainstream agribusiness, then they wouldn't be using things like intercropping if it didn't work hmm. because it's all about money and nothing else. Um, you can follow some of those examples. You can also try your own combinations and see what happens because if you really want to learn, then you can experiment and you can find what works and then you can then take what you've learnt and suggest it to other people and they can try it. And if you find that they get the same results as you, then you've actually discovered something and you've gained new information. So rather than just sort of sitting back and expecting, expecting the world to come to you, you as a gardener, no matter how small your space is, can be discovering new things about gardening because there's so much combinations of things that no one's ever tried and seeing what works. And you might find something that works that might be great to spread with your local community and they'll be able to get far more productivity by combining certain things. So the important thing is go out and do it. doesn't matter how much space you have, whether you're gardening in a few pots, even on a windowsill, you can still grow things. You can even grow a lot of, you can grow some veggies and herbs indoors, believe it or not. And if you're, one thing that I forgot to mention is that if you're, con if you're container gardening, you can grow companion plants next to each other by putting the pots next to each other. So, if you, so any plants that attract beneficial insects will still work because the beneficial insects will still come and will go to the other pots. If anything, if any of the benefits are gained by compounds put out by the leaves, because some plants put out repellent smells from their leaves which will repel pests so if this if it's a leaf effect you can have your pots sitting side by side the only thing that you lose with pots growing in pots or containers is any effect from root to root but you can if in the larger containers like a you know 50 centimeter wide pot a 100 liter grow bag or some of the soft watering tubs you can plant the plants next to each other like you can plant your onions and you can plant your carrots together to get the benefit so it's all about getting creative and there's a lot to discover. For the people who complain that a lot of the evidence is anecdotal, well, it's up to you to basically not make it anecdotal by actually doing some controlled <laughs> research if, you really, if it's that important to you and doing it. And the thing is, if you don't want to do it because you, you're waiting for research that's going to sit there and outline every chemical that, that is interacting from plant to plant to creating the interaction from plant to plant, it's never going to happen. I keep on reminding people, one of the most important things, humans have been using fire for at least, you know, a couple of hundred thousand years. Because anything that looks like remotely human is 200,000 years old. Agriculture is 10,000 years old. So we've probably been using, we've been using fire for well over 10,000 years, probably at least 100,000, maybe even 200,000 years in terms of how early in the game we um, discovered fire and invented how to actually produce it. We've only been able to describe the – I've got a biomedical science background. I've done physics to quite an advanced level. And one of the things I know is we couldn't describe the combustion process, how an actual bit of wood catches on fire scientifically for a very long time. It's probably something we've only been able to really explain in the last 100 years. Just because we can't explain something doesn't mean we can't use it. Like I said – Technology is knowing how to do something and being able to repeat it and explain to other people how to do it. Science is explaining how it actually occurs. Having an explanation does help, but it's not necessary to do what we need to do. Same way that we haven't been able to explain fire. 90% of people don't understand how their internal combustion engine works, but they still drive their car. And 
I can guarantee you that most people cannot describe the physics and the chemistry of lighting a match and what's actually happening there because they still use matches or a gas lighter. So that is no excuse for neglecting companion planting. The only excuse is abject laziness. So I would suggest plant anything, whether you companion plant or not, give it a go. The advantage that companion planting gives you is you can actually be getting better yields, less pests and diseases, and more vigorous plants if you actually use companion planting methods. You will also, combined with crop rotation, will avoid depleting your soils or your potting mix, whichever you're using. You will also avoid building high concentration, big populations of diseases or pests that will basically knock your gardening down to nothing in terms of productivity and it'll keep your gardening going. So you've only got to gain for a little bit of extra effort and that effort is not really any physical effort. It's just a little bit of thought. It's just a little bit of pre-planning. Mm. So with a gardening calendar, which you can get for free, I have them on my website, with a companion planning table, which you can get for free and I have on my website, you can get them everywhere. Um, Gardenate, which is a great website, which has gardening calendars all around the world also has suggestions for companion plants that information is readily available what i'm saying is spend five minutes before you plant come up with the best combination and enjoy the benefits because you're not doing the work nature's doing it and that's the whole Mm -hmm. point of ecological gardening and that's the best way to garden couldn't agree more mate so we will have links in the show notes to the article on your website where the companion planning guide is, and there'll also be links to a few other articles as well. I always like to ask our guests, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Yeah, uh, essentially it's my sort of overarching underlying philosophy for gardening. When you think about how plants grow in nature, they do it on their own. They don't really need humans. So if you think about working with nature, you can work out ways of growing your plants, basically gardening with minimal effort. The way I see it, since humans only started gardening 10,000 years ago, basically that was the advent of agriculture. Before that, plants grew on their own. People just used to wander around and harvest their veggies and berries and fruit, basically free range. Nature is more than capable of growing all these plants without you. If you're going to make any effort in gardening, don't duplicate what nature does because that's pointless. That's a waste of effort. Hmm. The best thing, like, that's why I let my lettuce go to seed because, hey, if it's going to go to seed, let it come up everywhere. I'll pick it when I need it. I don't have to bite lettuce seedlings. It's that simple. All you need to do is figure where you want to put your effort in. If you're putting any effort into gardening, it should be collaborative cooperative and additional to what nature is doing rather than fighting Mm. nature rather than trying to force nature to do something that it's not so don't try to force plants that don't want to grow together to grow together don't try to stop plants that want to grow from growing you know find natural ways of controlling things that are growing too vigorously for example find ways of controlling things like running away just by simple things like recycling a plastic pot cutting the bottom out and sinking it in Stop just chopping the leaves when it wants to go to seed. Stop it producing crazy hybrids that are going to be tasteless and useless. So just direct nature to do what you want it to do and then add your effort as a complementary effort. 
work with nature, not against it, and it becomes hands. It becomes a hands-off process. Growing veggies is the most intensive sort of gardening because it, veggies uh, need a fair bit of attention, more than fruit and berries, for example. And for that matter, they do take a little bit more attention. But you can have a full-time job. You can have very little to no time at all. You can not see your whole garden daylight during winter at all because you're working a nine-to-five and you're waking up sunrise and sort of coming back home after sunset and just spending the weekend and still have a very, very productive garden. You can be a child growing a verge footpath garden, a little one-by-one metre that's about 40 centimetres tall because veggies only need 40 centimetre deep garden beds. They're real shallow-rooted except for root crops if you're growing carrots and tomatoes, for example. It doesn't have to be complicated. Keep it simple. Keep your effort to the minimal and do the absolute minimum and try to grow smarter rather than work harder to grow things. Figure what nature can do for you, i.e. companion planting, and let nature do what it does best. And then you do absolute minimum that you want to do. And where your effort should be is in harvesting, sowing, watering, feeding, and harvesting. Mm. And that's not too hard. (laughs) That's some great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Angela. We really appreciate you here, mate. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, looking forward to our next chat, mate. Always looking forward to it. Always available. (laughs) Always check the show notes for relevant links. Angelo and I went deep in this episode, so set a reminder to listen to it again in a couple of weeks. Otherwise, you'll forget most of what you've just learnt. Please also share the episode with someone you know who could benefit from this companion planting knowledge. You might just make their day.